0: This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. So, uh, take your Bibles and turn to, um, to the um, uh, book of Esther, chapter 2. Book of Esther, chapter 2. This is lesson number 4. Lesson number four of learning to trust God's unseen hand. Learning to trust God's unseen hand. Uh, There was a movie that came out a long time ago. Back in 1980, it was a science fiction movie. It was called The Final Countdown. Has anyone ever seen the movie The Final Countdown? One person, okay. I hadn't even heard of it uh, up until just a, a few years ago. I hadn't seen it yet, but uh, I had to research it. And here's what the movie is about. The movie is about a U.S. aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz. It's caught up in a very strange storm. And the entire ship and her crew go back in time to December the 6th, 1941, in the Pacific. One day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Now, the plot of the movie is, as the ship's captain, he faces a moral dilemma. Do I launch a preemptive attack and go after the Japanese? Because after all, he's got modern jets at his disposal, you know, against these propeller-driven aircraft. I mean, he could blow them into oblivion. He's got missiles and all this stuff. So do I launch a preemptive attack? to thwart the Japanese and thereby change the entire course of world history for the remainder of the 20th century and beyond? Or do I stand by and let the historical course of events unfold? That would be quite a dilemma, wouldn't it not? It's like us being transported to September the 10th, 2011. And we have intimate knowledge of the hijackers and, and we were able to do something. Well... I am not going to tell you what he does. You'll have to watch the movie. Okay, I'm not going to, spoiler alert, nothing like that. His dilemma, however, was based upon what he knew would happen. That's why it was a dilemma. Had he just encountered the Imperial Japanese Navy, you know, and not known what happened afterwards in history, then well, the decision might be easier or it might not have been a dilemma at all. He was just going to ignore them. But the fact that he knew that he was coming into contact with an an air force and a navy that was going to uh, attack uh, viciously, you know, our exposed naval base, Because he knew that, because he knew about World War II, because he knew about all the battles. He knew about the European theater. He knew about the Pacific theater. He knew about the the fighting in North Africa. He knew about all of that stuff. But what about us today when we, or a better way to say it, what obligation do we have to do a moral good considering we don't know the consequences? do we have any responsibility to act and perform a moral good when we don't know what the consequences will be? Furthermore, what if that moral good is directed towards our perceived enemy? What if we were transported back in time and we learned or, or, or came into contact with Adolf Hitler as a teenager? You know, what obligations will we have to do any moral good knowing that he would turn out the way that he would turn out? What about the folks that we face today, circumstances that arise and 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 we would probably say, well, you know, well, pastor, I don't consider these people friendly towards me. They've treated me ugly. They have spoken ill against me. They don't they don't like the stances that I take on on certain moral issues and the fact that I'm a believer and they're not. So, pastor, am I obligated to perform moral good to these people other than just generally treat them generally nice? Okay? Well, our text tonight actually dives us headlong into that issue. In Esther chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 19. This is When uh, Esther has already been named queen, and this is the like one of the next situations that happens. Follow along with me as I read. Now, when the virgins were gathered together for the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. Verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, in other words, it, it Turned out to be true what Mordecai was saying. The men were both hanged on the in the ESV uses the word gallows. You may have a different word, uh, maybe perhaps um, hung or, or something. But and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All right, so. Here we are, we're picking up after Esther had already begun performing her duties as queen. But if you look in verse 9, we're talking about virgins still. So what's happening? That's because the role and the purpose of the virgins were, uh, had not yet ceased. As a matter of fact, even though Esther was now named queen, and even though that whole process we looked last week, it took like a year, right? The, the, the time of preparation took 12 months. You're still looking at a Persian kingdom of which someone might have gotten a late notice. And so it is reasonable, number one, that you would have virgins coming to the king's court because they just received word or whatever, held up and, and, and being transported. Who knows? But they're there. Then, number two, and very likely, and it, because we just know that this was historical fact, um, the king still had his way with the virgins that were there. Remember last week I talked to you about the different harems that the king had access to. And that there were kind of different stages there. And so that's what was happening. One commentator wrote, he said, After the elevation of Esther, a still further collection of virgins was made, perhaps of, of such as came from distant provinces and who arrived later. But we must keep in mind that the selection of Esther did not prohibit King Xerxes from loving other virgins also and even crowning them queens even though she, that is Esther, had the preference before all others. And, of course, let it be known also that Solomon himself, King Solomon, had his own issue with queens and concubines, okay? Uh, but Esther was the queen. She sat on the throne. I mean, she had the position that was not going to be taken away unless the king spoke so or, or decreed it so, But we still have this situation happening. If you look here in verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So Esther, even though she's a queen, she is still acting in accordance with her priorities. In other words, she is not letting anyone know where she came from. So here's what's happening, and this is is pretty cool. She knows who she is. She knows that she is a Jew and she knows why that's important. She knows the historical significance of it. So she knows vertically that she has a special relationship with God, with her and her kindred and her people. Because that vertical relationship is so important, it impacted how she treated other people horizontally. Okay? Um, Same is true for you and I. Our relationship with God tells us how to relate to other people. Now, the New Testament, Jesus himself almost unites them and makes them equal. And it's called the great commandment. Do you remember that in the Gospel of Matthew? Someone said, well, what is the greatest command, Jesus? Greatest command is this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. But the second is just like the first. In other words, like unto it. That's the Bible word. But the second is like unto it, meaning it's just like the first one. You will love your neighbors yourself. And you and I both know Jesus kind of had a high priority on treating other people right. There's a whole story about this good Samaritan, I remember, right? Okay. So. Esther was kind of in that mind frame. I mean, she knew who she was and it was going to and she was going to be obedient to God. But this obedience to God, interestingly enough, came through a respect of her uncle Mordecai saying, listen, you need to protect who you are. Now, the question arises, what difference does that make? I mean, think about it. Mordecai, Esther, and, and probably an and untold number of Jews were already living there. What difference does it make that the king would know or not know who they were? Let me give you some biblical explanation on that. First of all, from a historical perspective, the Lord knew that there were to be those who would not respond favorably to his blessings upon his chosen people. God knew beforehand as he chose Abraham to be the founder of his nation, of his people, through which he was going to bring the Messiah. God knew beforehand that not everybody is going to be jiving with Abraham and his kindred and people. Hence, in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, he told Abram, he says, Those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I'm going to curse. So God knew that not everybody was going to be all nice and friendly. Exodus chapter 1, in the opening chapter of Exodus, you know full well the story that, okay, by by this time you've got Joseph serving in in Egypt, and everything is hunky-dory until you get to Exodus 1. And what happens in Exodus chapter 1? Round about verse 8, in that paragraph there, you've got this Pharaoh who says, wait a minute, it's like I woke up one day and all I see around me are Jews. If they keep this up, they're going to take over the whole neighborhood. We better do something about this right now. So let's enslave them. That's, that's what the Bible says. That, that's, he was worried that they were going to be too numerous to take over. Matthew chapter 2. So we're going down to the New Testament. You've got these guys coming from Persia who come to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, uh, hi, we're here to worship the new king. Uh, Oh, really? (laughs) Well, please tell me where he is so that I, the current king, may worship this new king. Right? And what happened after that? Death of the children. Killed the babies. So, I mean, historically, Mordecai has a good reason to say okay Esther, just be careful with your name don't let people know who you are just yet furthermore and I and, and, and I think this is just as equally valid you've got a sitting king of a Persian Empire, Xerxes who knows that there are Jews living in this empire he also knows that they were given an edict a get out of jail free card to go back to their homeland to go back to the place where they came from. King says, why are they still here? If they're here, they must be up to something. So Mordecai wisely tells Esther, listen girl, for now, don't tell anybody about where you came from. Let's just keep that under wraps. I read a sermon this week about this this particular sermon was teaching that Mordecai was actually in sin because he stayed when he should have left. Um, right now, I have a hard time swallowing a pill like that because you're going to see in a few more weeks that Mordecai was right where God needed him to be despite this edict. And so I am not going to, and I would encourage you not to make Esther or Mordecai out to be bad people right now. If anything, I think they're, they're good people. We go to verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bicton and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. Now, That's interesting. As a matter of fact, the remainder of the text, many commentators say, is very unique because we don't know a whole lot about Mordecai to begin with. We just know that he's got this niece. She's now queen. He just told her to be careful about her name. Now he's sitting at the king's gate. It's almost like, okay, Mordecai, what did you do in the time that Esther was chosen as queen? What were you doing to be in the position where you are? Um, A guy by the name of Barry Davis, in his commentary, he wrote this. I think it's a a great way to think about it. He says, The author of the book of Esther treats this section, that is verses 21 through 23, much like a classified document. He permits his readers to know only as much as their security clearance at this point will allow. He reserves comment on the operational aspects of these materials until chapter 6 by which time his readers have gained a higher security clearance level through the study of the intervening chapters. His failure to address these issues generates a sense of unresolved tension that that, uh, that he maintains until chapter 6, and only then does he, by means of a hilarious irony, declassify the text and theref- thereby allow us, his readers, insight into data that previously had been for His eyes only, quote, unquote. So, in other words, and this is what I love about the Scripture, guys, the Holy Spirit is in charge of illuminating this author in writing what needs to be written. Okay? You see, the Scripture is not only an accurate history book, but it's also a redemption book. It is telling us the story of how God redeems His people, and sometimes how you tell details makes the story come that much more alive when you know details later on where you have that light bulb moment and you say, oh, now I see, now I get it. So what Barry Davis, this, what he says in his commentary is, that's what, that's what you can say is happening here, perhaps, that we're being told a little bit, it's true, but you'll get you'll get details filled in later on. So see now what you're going to do. You're going to go home tonight and you're going to read all the way up through chapter six and you know spoil it. So, but that's okay. You go do it because uh, I'm never going to not tell you to not read your Bible. So you know, so absolutely go do it. So, so here we have Mordecai. He he's got this position. Okay. Um, now there there are some who would just say and, and have explained it. Well. Mordecai had some prominence in and of himself anyway. I mean, even prior to all this stuff unfolding, uh, Mordecai had had some clout in his neighborhood. He I mean, he was on uh, a good standing with the Persian powers that be things of that nature. So that's why he's he's there. But in verse 22, it says. Um, or excuse me, th- th- these two eunuchs got angry and they and they were going to have a plot to kill Xerxes, Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, how we, the text does not say, and he told it to Queen Esther. So, see, not only, see, this is what's strange, not only does he have access to this, to this prominent area of the king's palace, he somehow has uh, ability to communicate with the queen. Now, I would assume, and, and, and you would assume, and rightly so, not your typical Joe Blow of the Persian empire would have communication access to the queen at any given moment. So yes, he's enjoying a position that, I mean, think about it. God has put him in a place that he needs to be. And so he lets Esther know. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, she says, Hey, uh, I'm just letting you know. I think it's more than hearsay, but there's two dudes serving you as eunuchs and, a friend of mine, his name is Mordecai, he overheard this. And I'm just telling you, so you just, I'm just telling you, you know, uh, be on guard, watch you back, you know, whatever. Now, we have a document that is at our disposal. How many of you have ever heard of a guy by the name of Josephus? One, two, okay. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And I've got his works in, in my office and it's a big old encyclopedia type book. He was a historian. He, he, was, he was able to write accounts of things that were happening. Okay, Now it's not scripture. Okay, He was not inspired by the Holy Spirit but it is accurate and his works are very reliable. He fills in some gaps here about this circumstance. Let me tell you what he wrote. Josephus says, sometime after this, These two eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, plotted against the king. And uh, Barnabasus, he's another guy, not mentioned in the text, but this other guy, Barnabasus, the servant of one of the eunuchs, being by birth a Jew, was acquainted with their conspiracy and discovered it, meaning he told it to the queen's uncle, Mordecai. That's how it happened. So apparently, and if, and if um, we can trust Josephus with this, as we can trust him with a lot of his history, very accurate, um, we've got another guy who's got some inside knowledge of these things, this plot that's taking place. He's a Jew, he doesn't like what he's hearing, he tells Mordecai, and then here's your dilemma. See, you see, Mordecai could have just let well enough alone. Dude, I'm just going to, listen, let the king be killed off. You know, then maybe we won't have as much to worry about. But Xerxes was not a friend of the Jew. We're going to learn that, you know, next week. Xerxes wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh. Everything that we know about Xerxes now is that, you know, he will... He's capable of anything because of his sin, just like we are. You know, he was going to exploit his wife, remember, by exposing her at this big banquet. He had his way with all these virgins for upwards of 12 months, still having his way. I mean, this dude's not, you know, he's not a nice guy. We had someone like that, and and we had knowledge that they would be coming into harm, what will we have done with that information? Knowing that we were able to, to relay that message of harm to the proper authorities. It is a dilemma. Verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so. In other words, it was true. Mordecai was right. These two guys, Bicton and Teresh, they—it turns out they were going to kill Xerxes. These men were both hanged at the gallows. How many of you have a different word other than gallows in your Bible? What is uh, Alan? What does your Bible say? Tree. Anybody else have the word tree? Tree. Okay. Anybody else have another word? Okay. Anybody else? Anybody have the word um, stake? Okay. All right. This is an interesting word, and now I will first tell you that the study of this word does not change anything about the text, but it is an interesting Hebrew word. Uh, The word uh, that's that's translated tree, gallows, is actually borrowed from an old Hebrew word that actually really wasn't used a whole lot. But it was translated in so many different ways that it's hard to pinpoint the one true, accurate, you know, whatever. Let me give you, for instance, when you, uh, um, uh, Brother Bob Taylor will appreciate this, when you look at our Hebrew lexicon, when you open up that Hebrew lexicon, it tells you all the variant readings and translations of certain words, you know, in Hebrew and Greek. This is what this word will be translated into carpenters, framework, gallows, handle, logs, shaft, stalks, stick, sticks, timber, timbers, tree, trees, wild, wood, wooden. Okay. So, um, so what commentators have done here is instead of just, you know, worrying about the specific word, uh, they use the ESV will use the word gallows. King James will use the word tree. Uh, let me tell you why those are the preferable words. Because it relates to the Persian method of execution. That's all it was talking about. What was the Persian method of execution? If you will permit me to get it PG 13, a little bit gruesome, but this is what happens. The particular method of Persian execution was by impalement. It was a stick, much like a tree. Okay, hold on a second. Much like a tree. You just whittle down stake placed in the ground. Okay. That particular method of execution was not immediate. You suffered for a little while. Hence you hung there on the stake until you died. Yes, sir. I bet you got a note to read, right? Impaled on poles. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was the Persian method, okay? So when you talk about the word hang, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you hung there until you died, and, and it most certainly was not um, uh, immediate. But that's what was, was happening here. Um, I, I will say this. It is important to know that the author is mentioning a Persian method of execution now. You will see it again later. Why did Mordecai intervene on behalf of the king, who was as immoral as it got? He was not a particular friend known to be a friend of the Jews. Why was a good moral man prompted to do something good for this king? Yes, Alan? I'm sorry? Protect, okay? Okay? Reasons Reasons I'm going to give you are going to coincide with the rule that I gave you. Remember, in learning to trust God's unseen hand, you will at times be called and be put into a position where you're going to have to do something good for somebody who, who just, they ain't your friend. But let me give you theologically why this text supports that rule. Number one. The Jews could have been blamed for the assassination had it been carried out. We know that that's a distinct possibility because we also know that it was Emperor Nero in the great fire of Rome who blamed Christians, which led and opened the doors to horrendous persecution of the first century church. So Mordecai says, you know what? We let this thing happen. And if Josephus, now he's a historian, he's, you know, Mordecai's thinking one of the eunuch's servants is a Jew. It it won't take long for for Xerxes to draw a line from point A to point B and, and make something that's not there. And then we're all in danger. Preventing a moral good may prevent greater disasters from taking place. Now that is a good statement when you build a theology for warfare. Did you know that? When I was in Southeastern, we took a, I took a class called Ethics of Life and Death. I I taught some of those things to you guys a um, while way a while back. And you talk about things that you know. Is it necessary to drop the big bomb? You know and that was actually part of the reasoning behind President Truman bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He said, I know it will cost many, many lives, but think about the lives it would save should we do a land invasion of Japan, which was actually his next option. I would just tell you this I reserve judgment because I never want to be in that position, would you? God saved the king, but God saved the president. I don't care what letter he has behind his name or her name. That's just power that I would, that's why we pray for them, you know? And so for Mordecai, he's saying, listen, there's a greater good here. Furthermore, not only could we be to blame and I may be preventing, you know, um, a greater disaster, but maybe another greater disaster is the turmoil of a fallen leader. Okay, um, one of the pivotal events of the 20th century was Dallas, November 1963, and it was important for Lyndon Johnson to be sworn in as president within hours of Kennedy's assassination. To show the world and the country, we're, we're, you know, everything's running smoothly. We have a smooth transition of power. By the way, the, I don't know why I'm just kind of chasing this rabbit. Um, I think one of our particular blessings, this was pointed out to me by my philosophy professor at Southeastern of all people. Um, But I think one of the particular blessings that we have here in this country is that we can actually hold a presidential election every four years and our country not fall into turmoil. We read about countries that have their national elections and it's like, you know, warfare going on. And um, so Mordecai was thinking, hey, you know, if Xerxes is killed, who knows what's going to happen to Esther and who knows what's going to happen to this culture. And I mean, think about it. A bad guy may be killed to put a a worse guy on the throne. Number two. well, Well, let me kind of recap number one. Why it's important is sometimes performing a moral good may prevent a greater disaster from happening. Number two. It's just simply the right thing to do. Mordecai had a New Testament understanding of respecting authority in the Old Testament. He just knew that I'm going to protect the king because murder is bad. It is. Murder is bad. Respecting our authorities. I mean, Paul in in Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn there, there's a statement in this that is oftentimes overlooked. uh, Not necessarily on behalf of the church, but actually overlooked on behalf of our leaders. But in Romans chapter 13, Paul tells to this church in Rome... He's giving them a theology of, of respecting and obeying earthly leaders, okay? And the, and the teaching of this is rather interesting. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So first of all, there's not been a single government that's on the face of this earth that hasn't uh, been formed because of God's permittance. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God's appointed. So, Pastor, you mean you're talking about just constitutional republics, right? You're just talking about democracies. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about any and every government. He says any and every government, any type of authority that is down here on this earth is existing because I've allowed it to be so. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. In other words, be a good citizen of your state. Be a good citizen of your state. But look at verse 4. This is what a lot of folks forget, leadership-wise. For he is God's servant for your good. That's where the evil component comes in. That's where the leaders who come in and say, I will dictate because I want what I want and could care less about the people under me. That's. But look at also in in the same theology repeated in verse six. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Whether they're a police officer, an elected representative in Congress, a governor in the executive branch, doesn't matter. They need to be reminded they are to serve as a minister of God. That's a big deal. So you can, you can see Paul is, is giving equal responsibility to both the citizen and the leader. Mordecai says, you know what? It's just the right thing. This kingdom may not be friendly to me. And I'm still here for only God knows the reason why. But God has the king where he is. I'm just going to do the right thing. And then finally, Mordecai knew that Esther was queen for a reason. Mordecai knew that, that Esther was chosen. and Now, they were not aware of the impending danger headed their way because it's, things are about to go from bad to worse. And he didn't know as of yet her purpose for being chosen as queen. He nonetheless protected the royal couple from danger. So let's recap it. These three things that this text speaks to. Why I should be responsible for performing a moral good to a perceived enemy. Number one, remember, doing that moral good may prevent a greater evil. Number two, it's just the right thing to do. And I could have named a lot of verses. Be ye kind one to another. Um, you know, just, it's just the right thing to do. Love your neighbor, love your enemy Okay. And circumstances are there for a reason. But can I also say this? They they always won't be there. It won't be that way forever. Okay. And I think finally that ought to just be a good reminder for us. Okay? In your personal life, in the life of a church, in the life of a country doesn't matter things always won't be the way that they are forever in our life we we have mountaintop experiences and we go down into the valley as a church we'll have our mountaintop experiences and we'll go down to the valley as a country there's sometimes we just feel like we're, we're up high on the mountain and then we're down in the valley but it won't stay that way it won't stay that way you know why i know that it won't stay that way Because one day, I won't be here. I'll be with King Jesus one day. And so no matter how long something may last, it may not be the way I like it, one day I'll just be with Jesus and it'll all be good. Not just good, it'll be perfect. It'll be perfectly good. Okay? But in the meantime, we we won't always be surrounded by our friends. Sometimes we have to work with coworkers that just, they rub us raw and we get so angry and frustrated and upset but no we will still be kind we will still love we will still help we may have a a family member They just do not get our faith. They just don't get why we're in church all the time and why we're out, you know, uh, uh, serving with the children's ministry or students or singing in the choir or playing an orchestra or doing a host of other things in the church. They may not get that, but we still love them and we're still kind to them. While we're waiting to see what God's going to do next. He's given us plenty to do in the meantime. And sometimes what we are called to do is to be the disciple of Christ to our enemies that Jesus was to his own enemies. Let me um, end with this text. It just kind of jumped up here and. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down. Servants, this is a First Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.